The Old Testament, the New Testament reading for today is Acts 14, 19 through 23. Acts 14, 19 through 23. The Old Testament reading and the sermon text is Exodus 18, 13 through 27. So please turn to those uh, two places, Acts 14, 19, and then Exodus 18, 13. And while the children are getting situated and while you're turning to these uh, places in the scriptures, I would encourage you to come to afternoon worship where we sing again, where we hear catechetical preaching, and where we pray together corporately um, each and every week as I write these sermons for the afternoon service. I think this is so important that we do this regularly, that we encounter the great and vital doctrines of the Christian faith uh, on a regular basis as a congregation. So please come if you're able. Acts 14, verse 19, would you hear now the reading of God's most holy word? This is after we read about the miracle performed uh, through Paul at Lystra, uh, wherein a man crippled from birth was made able to walk, and after hearing of the enthusiastic and even idolatrous reaction of the crowd towards Paul and his companion Barnabas, uh, we read, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, he had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Let us go now to Exodus chapter 18, and we will look at verses 13 through 27. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times." Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. 
and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it today. You know, I had a bit of an interesting experience with our text for today as I began to study it and to reflect upon this passage in preparation for the sermon. I, I read it, and as I reflect upon, re- re- reflected upon it, I quickly realized that I was bringing some baggage to the text with me. And by the way, we do always have to be mindful of this when we study the Scriptures. Uh, the student of the Bible should ask, do I have any preconceived ideas about this text that might impact my ability to interpret and apply it correctly? And, and the, the answer will often be yes, by the way. Uh, we often bring baggage to the text of, of Scripture with us, maybe even always. The important thing is to acknowledge these biases that we have and then to go about the task of interpretation and application in a very honest way. So what were the preconceived notions that I had to wrestle with as it pertains to this text? Well, in my experience, this text, which is about the establishment of a hierarchical judicial system within Old Covenant Israel, has been used and abused by those who wish to justify unbiblical forms of church government under the New Covenant. In some traditions, it seems as if the New Testament is largely ignored while great weight is placed upon this passage here to justify a form of church government that is very top-heavy and structured in a hierarchical manner. I wonder what forms of church government do you think of when I, when I say this? Uh, some of you, no doubt, will think of Rome with the Pope at the head functioning like a Moses figure and its hierarchy of cardinals, bishops, and priests. But others will think, probably, of what they have observed within evangelical churches today where pastors function as CEOs and the work of the ministry, which the New Testament teaches that pastors are to do, is delegated away to church staff and even to the members of the churches themselves. I've actually heard this model that I'm here referring to called the Moses model. Have you ever heard this? This is the Moses model for ministry, um, you see. Uh, pastor functions as a CEO, he's a bit distant from the congregation, staff members and even the members of the church themselves are told to do the work of the ministry. Uh, that model is based not upon the New Testament, it's based upon the Old, in fact, upon passages like this. This might not seem like a huge thing to you, it's a very big deal to me. As a minister, over the years I've developed a rather strong disdain for this top-heavy and hierarchical form of church government. It's now so common with evangelic, within evangelical churches. And, and I'm afraid that it has led to a situation within churches where pastors are neglecting what the Lord has called them to do, where members are asked to do things they were never called to do, and where Christians are left, therefore, without adequate pastoral care. I, I've come to see the Moses model, as it has been called by some, as highly problematic and even damaging within the modern church today. So with that as background, where do you think my mind went when I read this text? Uh, My my initial impulse was uh, to almost react negatively to this passage of Scripture because I've seen it so abused. My impulse was to deal only with what this event meant to Old Covenant Israel historically, And to deny that this passage has any bearing upon the church today, I actually think that would have been a mistake. 
uh, this passage does have application for us today. Has this passage been misused and abused? Yes, I'm, I'm sure it has. Pragmatists have approached this text as if, it point, as if the point of it is to provide us with leadership principles. Um, maybe a sermon title would be Dare to Delegate or something like that, you know, if the emphasis were to be placed upon the leadership principles that can be gleaned from this text. Um, and yes... I'm convinced that it is wrong to pretend that this passage is primarily about church government or principles for leadership. For the original context must be ignored in order to put the emphasis here. But it would also be a mistake to say this text has nothing at all to do with new covenant church life, practically speaking. So then, let us consider this text carefully in two parts. First, we will ask, what did this text mean to old covenant Israel? And then we will ask, what does this text mean for the church today. First, what did this text mean for Old Covenant Israel? Well, generally speaking, it describes the origin of Old Covenant Israel's judicial system. When the Old Covenant people of God read this text and reflected upon the event that is recorded here, they were moved to contemplate the beginning of their judicial system and of its impact upon their nation. I have three observations to make regarding this text as it applied to Old Covenant Israel. One, we must observe that the Hebrews at this time came to have a judicial system of their own. I want you to think of it. In the days of Abraham, the Hebrews were only a family. Soon, they would grow into a clan. After that, they would become a great multitude, but only as sojourners and then as slaves in Egypt. While in Egypt, they were subject to the laws of, this, of that land. They did not have a legal system of, of their own. Uh, they were not free, therefore, to establish their own judicial system there in Egypt. But when God redeemed them and when they were at peace near Sinai, Moses began to adjudicate the disputes that had arisen between the people. Before this, the Hebrews did not have an established and well-developed judicial system of their own. But here we witness the birth of it. Stated differently, here in Exodus, we are witnessing the birth of a nation. A nation that would come to have laws of its own judges, and eventually kings. Here we are told of the beginning of all of that. And as you know, the beginning of things is very important. For there in the beginning, foundations are laid. And so we should pay especially careful attention to what is said about the beginning of things, therefore. Two, pay careful attention to the structure of this judicial system adopted by Israel. This passage has a lot to do with structure, doesn't it? We must pay careful attention to the structure of this judicial system adopted by Israel. At first, Moses sat alone to judge the people. The lines were very long, and at the end of the day, not all of the cases were heard. Moses was exhausted, and the people of Israel were undoubtedly frustrated. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. We should not forget who Jethro was. He was the father-in-law of Moses, the priest of Midian, who had recently blessed the Lord God of Israel, worshipped him, saying, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. So we have witnessed the conversion of Jethro just recently, but we should not forget that he was a Gentile. Jethro was a Gentile. He was not a Hebrew. 
He would not join himself permanently to Israel, but would return to his homeland of Midian. The end of the text tells us about that. Jethro was a Gentile, and it was he who observed Moses sitting alone as, as judge and said, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. The thing is too heavy for you. So Jethro the Gentile did not only have criticism for what Moses was doing, he also offered wise counsel to, counsel to him saying, Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Jethro's advice was about the structure of Israel's judicial system. I think one question we should ask is, where did Jethro get these ideas concerning a hierarchical judicial system like the one that he proposed. Where did he get these ideas? Well, undoubtedly, these ideas came from his experience as the priest of Midian. Jethro, being a respected leader amongst his people, was certainly called upon to engage in judicial matters. Perhaps the system he proposed was the exact system employed by the Midianites, or perhaps the system he proposed was a refinement of the one used by the Midianites as he reflected upon the system he observed there in his homeland. Perhaps he critiqued even that one and, and proposed a refined version for Moses and for Israel. The point is this. It was a Gentile who was used by the Lord to give Israel their hierarchical judicial system. The text is clear about that, isn't it? Again, I will ask the question that I've asked many times before in this sermon series, why this way? Why this way? Why did this happen? Why did Moses record this for us so that we have this as Scripture? Could not the Lord have revealed this system of government to Moses from the get-go? Or could not the Lord have revealed it to Moses, Aaron, or one of the other leaders of Israel after things went badly at first? Why this way? Why did God use a Gentile? And even after the Lord used Jethro in this way, why did Moses record it for us? Uh, you know how historians sometimes work. Sometimes they write down the good things about a nation while ignoring the bad so as to make people, a people or a nation look better than they really are. At other times, they will ignore the good and record the bad if they wish to make people look worse than they really are. We call this propaganda, don't we? But here, as is the case elsewhere in the Pentateuch, Moses tells the truth regarding himself and the Hebrews. His approach was at first bad. It was not good. But Jethro, the Gentile, his advice was very good. And verse 24 tells us, So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. What's the point? Well, here we see a couple of things. One, the Hebrews in general, and Moses in particular, were chosen by the Lord, not because they were naturally more wise or gifted than the other peoples and nations, but by the grace of God alone. That seems to be the primary reason why all of the faults and failures and, 
and all of the foolishness of, of the Hebrews are emphasized in the text of Genesis and also in the text of Exodus. Why, why emphasize the failings of Abraham over and over again? In order that we might know for certain that what God was doing with Abraham and through him was by the grace of God alone. And I think the same is true concerning the story of Moses. From the beginning, it was the Lord who called Moses by grace. Moses himself self was frail and unwilling. Here we say, see that he took a bad approach, whereas it was Jethro the Gentile who gave good advice concerning uh, the legal structure of Israel. Two, here we have yet another example of Moses highlighting the natural wisdom and justice of Gentiles, even showing them to be sometimes superior to the Hebrews. I'm thinking, of course, of the way that Moses in Genesis contrasts Abraham with Pharaoh in Genesis 12, and Abraham with Abimelech in Genesis 20 in those stories wherein Abraham instructed Sarah to say that she was his sister and not his wife. Do you remember those stories? Abraham was taking his wife down into these foreign places, Egypt, and into uh, the land Gerar where Abimelech served as king. And he assumed that these people would be so thoroughly wicked and evil that they would do injustice to him and to Sarah. And so he said, lie. Say that you are my sister, not my wife, so that the Lord would deal favorably with me here in this land. But he found that these, these kings and these places had more justice within them than he assumed. Again, he assumed that these people would act in a thoroughly unjust way. And yet, in these instances, the kings of Egypt and Gerar appeared to be more just than Abraham. Why these stories? Moses must have included them in the Hebrew Scriptures to humble us and also to show that God was restraining evil in the world, that He was preserving a degree of morality and justice even amongst the pagans, and that even they had some access to truth and wisdom through the natural world. The Hebrews would be given God's Word. God would speak to them in a special way. Uh, to use Paul's language, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The Hebrews would receive marvelous gifts from God, very precious things, including the law of God. So yes, the Hebrews were the recipients of special revelation, but there are indications sprinkled throughout the Old Testament that help us to see that God did not leave the nations without witness, but revealed some truth to them through nature. You may see Acts 14, 17 for more about that. It was Jethro, a Gentile, who suggested that Israel's judicial system be structured in this wise and prudent manner. And so let us consider his advice a little more closely. One, Moses, the prophet and priest of God, would still be involved in the judicial process, but he would hear only the difficult cases brought to him through a process of appeal. Two, other men would be appointed to hear lesser cases, and there would be a hierarchical structure amongst them. Some would be appointed to serve in the lower courts, if I may use language familiar to us, and others would be appointed to serve in higher courts. Three, Moses was to select these judges from amongst the people. This means that the people were to be fairly represented. One tribe was not to be shown preference over another in judicial matters. Four, 
the judges were to be selected not on the basis of birth or social status, but on the basis of giftedness and character. Moses was to look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. These were the kinds of men that Moses was to place over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So there were, there were character qualifications that these men were to meet. They were to have a certain giftedness. Uh, we know uh, that judicial systems will be badly corrupted and rendered useless if the men who serve as judges in them love bribes and are not faithful men. So Moses commanded, uh, Jethro uh, commanded, uh, advised, uh, that these be the kind of men that be appointed to judge the people. Five, this structure would then free Moses to warn the people about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. In other words, this method of delegation would free Moses to function as God's prophet, as God's prophet. Moses would be free to, to preach the word, if you will, to declare the word of God to the people as God's prophet. My third observation concerning what this passage meant to Old Covenant Israel is this. The civil laws of Old Covenant Israel were given to them by God through Moses by special revelation. And this is such an important observation. Uh, brothers and sisters, you're perhaps sitting in, in, in the seats now listening to me going, what does this have to do with my life today? You know, um, Old Covenant Israel and their judicial system, hierarchical as it was, what does it have to do with my life today? Pay careful attention to this third observation. I, I think it, it will be very helpful for you and for me to understand the Old Testament scriptures. Such an important observation. In the days of Moses, Israel became a great nation. But they were not an ordinary nation. Please hear me. In the days of Moses, Israel became a great nation, but they were not an ordinary nation. No, they were a holy nation set apart by God for redemptive purposes. The precious and very great promises of God were entrusted to them. They entered into a special covenant with God. They were called to build the tabernacle and later the temple by God's command. There they were to worship, being led by the priesthood. Prophets ministered amongst them. Their kings were to be after God's own heart. This nation, the nation of Old Covenant Israel, was utterly unique. Never was there a nation like them before, during, or after the time of the Old Mosaic Covenant. And we must recognize that the law that was given to them through Moses was in some ways unique too. I really want you to hear that last point. We are to recognize that the law that was given to them through Moses was in some ways unique too. I've said in some ways because the Ten Commandments which were given to Israel, having been written by the finger of God on stone, are to be viewed as a summary of God's moral law. God's moral law was not unique to Israel but was written at man's heart at the time of creation and is accessible to all even now being revealed in the things that God has made. Yes, men and women suppress and distort this natural law, as it is sometimes called, but it is there nonetheless. You can read Romans 1 to, to learn all about this. Romans 1 talks about how men and women suppress the truth that is revealed to them naturally. 
in order to suppress something, it has to be there. You understand? In order to distort something, it has to be there. And it is there, written upon the heart of man, even still after the fall and revealed in the created world. Do men and women suppress and distort it? Absolutely they do, but they suppress and distort it because it is there within them, you see. And we do believe that the Ten Commandments that were given to Israel through Moses, they were a summary of this moral law. And of course... This law, the moral law of God, was not unique to them, but is for all and is accessible to all. But Israel was called to worship the Lord in a way that no other people on earth were called to worship. God gave them laws. We call them ceremonial laws to govern their worship. They were to build a tabernacle. They were to establish a priesthood. They were to abstain from certain foods. They were to call some things clean and other things unclean. They were to observe holy days in addition to the weekly Sabbath. These laws were given to them through Moses by divine revelation. They were unique to them. They were unique to them because they were a unique people, a holy people set apart by God from all the nations of the earth. These laws were given to them. They were not given to other nations. And something very similar may be said about the civil law code that was given to Israel. These civil laws, which are sometimes called judicial laws, were given to Israel. They were not imposed upon other nations. May we learn from these civil laws that were given to Israel through Moses by God? The answer is yes, of course. The civil laws, all of them, have moral principles at their core. Something may be learned about morality and justice, therefore, from the civil laws that God revealed to Israel. But we must draw these principles of general equity, as they are called, out of the civil laws given to Israel very carefully. In brief, we must remember that Israel was a holy nation wherein the kingdom of God was prefigured on earth. Therefore, We should not be surprised to find an unusual strictness in the laws imposed upon Israel. We will find, for example, that violations of the first table of the Ten Commandments, which have to do with the worship of God, were punishable by death in Old Covenant Israel. Idolaters were to be put to death in Israel. False prophets were to die. Even Sabbath breakers were to die in Old Covenant Israel. May we learn something about God's moral laws? We consider these civil laws imposed upon Israel. Yes, of course, God alone is to be worshipped and we are to worship Him in the way that God has prescribed. We're to take this very seriously. We also see in Old Covenant Israel's laws a kind of picture of how God will judge the world through Christ on the last day when He consummates His kingdom. On the last day, God will not judge men for crimes, but for sins if not in Christ, by faith. And what is sin? Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Here's the point. The civil law code that was given to Israel by God through Moses was for them. For the Lord was doing something special with them. They were a holy nation, and so their civil law code was not only concerned with matters of justice, but matters of holiness too. Crimes against persons were not the only crimes punished civilly, but also violations of God's law pertaining to the worship of God. 
This is a big and complex subject that I've begun to wade into, and I do need to turn around and return to the shore now before we drowned, right? Um, I'll do so by restating my third observation concerning what this passage meant to Old Covenant Israel. The civil laws of Old Covenant Israel were given to them by God through Moses by special revelation. Look at verse 16. It really is marvelous to consider. As the people came to Moses with their disputes, he would decide between one person and another and would make them know the statutes of God and His laws. And when Jethro offered his advice to Moses, he said in verse 19, Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Taken together, these verses describe... Moses, not as a philosopher, nor as a legal theorist, nor as a highly skilled judge writing laws and enforcing them based upon natural reason. No, Moses was a prophet. He heard from God and delivered God's word to Israel. This was special, brothers and sisters. No other nation on earth can make this claim that its law code, the whole thing, with all of its specifics, came by divine inspiration. Yes, all of the civil laws in every nation on earth should be based on God's moral law as revealed in nature and even much more clearly in Scripture. But this was different. Here God gave a holy civil law to a holy people through a holy prophet. And what is introduced here in brief form will be greatly amplified later in the book of Exodus And, of course, in the rest of the Pentateuch as well. So, we're here considering the birth of Israel's judicial system. And I am saying these these first things are, are very important. They set the stage for what will follow. Israel was given a hierarchical judicial system through the advice of Jethro the Gentile. But the laws themselves, we see, were brought to Israel through God's prophet Moses. They were brought to Israel, and they were from God. They were from God Himself. These are important things to notice. Well, after hearing all of that, I hope you agree with me that it is a bit of a stretch to jump from this text straight to questions about New Covenant church government. I've left a little time, though, to ask What does this mean for the church today? Because it does have an impact upon us today. We do not live in Old Covenant Israel. This text was for them. It was precious to them. It meant a lot to them. But it also means something to us today as we live under the New Covenant. What does this text mean for the church today? Uh, First, I have two observations to make regarding the difference between Old Covenant Israel's experience and ours. We have to keep them in mind. One... Unlike Old Covenant Israel, we do not have a Moses figure amongst us, for Christ has come. Stated differently, Christ, the eternal and incarnate Word of God, is our Moses. To whom do we appeal in questions regarding faith and practice? Old Covenant Israel was to appeal eventually to to Moses in, in matters of law as he lived amongst them. But who do we appeal to? The answer is that we appeal to God through Christ and we have His Word. We have His Word. 
Old Covenant Israel had Moses in the midst of them at the time of the Exodus. The people and judges appealed to him. And after Moses died, the people were to appeal to the scriptures that he wrote. They were to appeal to the scriptures. The Pentateuch, as we call it, was precious to the Old Covenant people of God after Moses died too. Even the prophets who came after him would look back to the Pentateuch, the scriptures that Moses had written. And so they were to appeal to the scriptures, you see. The same pattern holds true for the new covenant people of God. Christ has come. He is the great prophet of whom Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You may see Deuteronomy 18.15 and Acts 3.22 to see proof for that. Christ has come. He is the great prophet, the, the prophet par excellence. He is the one to whom we appeal. We are to appeal to God through Christ, therefore, and not to any man on earth. We appeal to the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, as our authority for all things pertaining to faith and practice. Two, unlike Old Covenant Israel, the church as an institution has no responsibility or right to formulate or enforce civil laws. Let me repeat that. Unlike Old Covenant Israel, the church as an institution has no responsibility or right to formulate or enforce civil laws. And the reason for this is really quite simple. The church is not a nation. Under the Old Covenant, church and state were wed together, if you will allow me to use that terminology. But under the New Covenant, church and state are separated. Is God Lord over both church and state? The answer is, yes, He is. He rules them both, but he rules them in different ways. May Christians labor in the civil realm? Yes, and in fact, I would say they ought to if they have the giftedness, the calling, the opportunity. It is right for Christians to to labor in the civil realm, to engage in civil matters for, for for the benefit of society. And should Christians use God's general revelation and God's special revelation when working in the civil realm to encourage a moral and just society? Answer, yes, they must. I might even ask, how could they not? But they must do so with great care, being sure to rightly divide the word of truth. So should Christians labor in the civil realm? Yes, maybe the Lord is calling you to engage in politics, to become, yes, even a politician for the good of society. And what should you do as a politician except to bring God's revelation, both natural revelation and special revelation, to bear on your work, the work that you are doing for the benefit of society? But what about the church? What what can the church as an institution Uh, learn from this story about Moses, Jethro, and the establishment of Israel's hierarchical judicial system? Well, I think it is right for us to see that there are some similarities between this old covenant legal system and the system of government that is prescribed for the church in the New Testament. One, we must recognize that God has provided the church with a system of government under the New Covenant, just as He did for Israel under the Old In other words, the Lord has not left questions about structure open-ended for us. Local churches are to be self-governing. They are to be led and served by elders and deacons, each in their own way. 
I think you can see what I'm getting at here. If, if you've been around the church for a while and if you've studied theology, you might run into this idea that, well, how we do things in the church, that's up to us, you see. Um, we, we can decide for ourselves how we operate. We can decide for ourselves what our structure ought to be. We just, we, we just need to be wise. We need to be prudent in, in anything goes. It's not true. The New Testament scriptures provide a system of government for the new covenant people of God, just as the old covenant scriptures provided a system of government for the old covenant people of God. Two, the final authority to which we must appeal is the word of God. God is our authority and he has spoken. He has spoken through Christ and his apostles and now we have his written word. So just as old covenant Israel had the scriptures to appeal to, so too the new covenant Israel of God has the scriptures to appeal to. Three, just as the responsibility to govern was to be shared under the old covenant, so too it is to be shared under the new. Churches should strive to have a plurality of elders so that the burdens of teaching, of leading and shepherding, uh, so that the burden of overseeing may be shared by many. Unless the church is very small, the work of the ministry will be too overwhelming for one man to bear. And even then, there is wisdom in a plurality. And so churches should strive for this, for a plurality of elders, so that the work of the ministry may be shared by many. Deacons are critical too. We know that the first deacons were appointed to address practical and physical needs within the church so that the elders and then the apostles who were amongst them could devote themselves to the ministry of the word of God and to prayer. And so deacons are vital. Churches ought to appoint them and elders should be sure to allow them to do their work and even to delegate to them appropriately. We see that the new covenant people of God have a structure of church government prescribed for them by God in the Holy Scriptures, elders and deacons are to do their part. And you should notice that just as Israel's judges were to be selected from amongst the people, not on the basis of birth or status, but only after meeting character qualifications, so too it is for church officers. The judges of Israel were to be from the people, men who feared God, who were trustworthy and hated a bribe, and you are well aware of the qualifications for elders and for deacons that are set forth so clearly in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 2. Again, it is, not, it is not a matter of birth or status. It is a matter of meeting certain qualifications, character qualifications, and giftedness as well. So then, this principle of delegation is present within the New Testament pattern for church government. A, a plurality of elders is ideal, and so too is, is a faithful diaconate. And I think you would also agree that the members of the church can make a great difference by being faithful to use the gifts that God has given to them for the building up of the body of Christ. There are officers and there are members. Elders and deacons must do their part. There should be plurality amongst them. I think that is the, the pattern set forth for us in the New Testament so that the ministry responsibilities might be shared by many. But the scriptures also have a lot to say about the members of the church, how each and every Christian has been given spiritual gifts and what are those spiritual gifts for, brothers and sisters? Therefore, the edification or the building up of the body of Christ and so elders and deacons must do their part, but so too the members of the church must do their part. They must use the gifts that God has given to them for the benefit of the church. No, I'm not claiming that every member is called to do what elders and deacons are called to do, but I am saying that every Christian is to be used by the Lord 
according to their ability and giftedness for the edification of others, for the building up of the body of Christ, of which we are all members. Lastly, I would like to make this brief observation. The old covenant nation of Israel was given civil laws and a judicial system. The same cannot be said of the church. But the church does have the ability, even the responsibility, to advise, to mediate, and even make judgments in non-criminal matters, in churchly matters. And it should take those obligations very seriously. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church about this saying, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? He's here speaking of the law system of Rome. There was a problem in the church in Corinth. They they were having disputes amongst themselves. They were non-criminal matters, but they required some sort of mediation, some sort of adjudication was required. And the Christians in Corinth were taking their disputes to to the Roman law courts for them to be worked out. And Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, what are you doing? Why, why are you taking this to the civil realm? Why are you taking this before non-believers? Or, or do you not know, he says, that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Are you incompetent to deal with these, these relatively small matters? Do you not know that we Or to judge angels, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle disputes between brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Paul is not here referring to cases involving criminal matters, crimes against persons, serious cases. That is to be dealt with in the civil realm. It's not to be confined to the church. We do not have that authority in the church to deal with criminal matters. We are to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And this is one of the things that belongs to Caesar in this new covenant age. It does not belong to the church. It did to old covenant Israel where church and state were wed, but now they are separate. What is Paul referring to here though? He's referring to trivial cases, disputes between brothers and sisters in Christ. Deal with it amongst yourselves, he's saying. Take care of it within the church. Are you not wise enough to do so? Here I am saying that we are to take this responsibility of ours seriously. The church is called to to judge, to mediate, to offer counsel in cases. On the one hand, we must not ignore the separation that exists now between church and the state under the new covenant. On the other hand, we must not ignore the responsibility that we have within the church to mediate, advise, and even judge on non-criminal matters. Far too often, troubles within the modern church are ignored. You've seen this. Troubles within the modern church are oftentimes ignored. Sometimes they are even left to non-believers to sort out, and this is to our shame. I'd like to conclude now by explicitly stating something that I've already alluded to. The existence of civil law codes and of judicial systems, both in Old Covenant Israel and in all the nations of the earth. Are you tracking with me now? Think of it. Old Covenant Israel had these. All the nations of the earth have them. Uh, 
civil law codes, judicial systems, right? Think about them. The existence of these civil law codes and judicial systems, they should remind us that a final judgment is coming. They should remind us that a final judgment is coming. These civil law codes and these judicial systems, yes, even the unusually strict laws of Israel, they are intended to do what here on earth? They are intended to restrain evil in the world. This is one of the ways that God preserves the natural order of things until Christ returns. Evildoers are punished, those who do good are encouraged, and a degree of justice is upheld when law systems are functioning as they should. But these attempts at justice, please hear me, are but a faint shadow of the kind of justice that will be vetted by God who sees all on the last day. Do you hear me on this? These these attempts at justice, they're nothing compared to the kind of justice that God will will enact on the last day. Here, in this present evil age, not all, but some crimes are prosecuted in our civil courts. And even when there is a degree of justice, it is not full or final. No, the justice that is served in this life is only earthly. It's only temporal. But on the last day, God will judge not only crimes against persons, but every sin committed against Him. His judgments will not be earthly and temporal, but spiritual and eternal. And so friends, please please hear me. You may be innocent as it pertains to the laws of this land, but no one is innocent before God. All have sinned and have fallen short of His glory. All have violated His law and thought word indeed. And what does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. On the last day, you will stand not before Moses to be judged by the civil laws or ceremonial laws of Israel. No, you will stand before Jesus Christ. And if you do not have Him as Savior, you will have Him as judge. And He will judge with perfect knowledge. The judges that we have on earth today, they're so limited, aren't they? They see only what is right before them. They can only hear evidence. They never witnessed the crime. But Christ will judge on the last day with perfect knowledge. He will judge in perfect holiness and righteousness according to God's perfect, eternal, and unchanging moral law of which the Ten Commandments are a summary. When held up to that standard, the standard of God's moral law, none is righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10 says. When Christ judges by that law, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable before God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let me remind you of what Matthew 25:31 through 41 says. When the Son of Man, that is Christ, comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, speaking of the last day when Christ returns, then He will sit on His glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Here is a description of the judgment day. And those who are cast into this eternal fire that is here mentioned will be judged by God's law, the moral law of God, written upon man's heart at the beginning, revealed to Israel through the Ten Commandments. We have it now. This is the law, the standard that Christ will judge by on the last day. And so, friends, I am saying to you, you had better have Christ as Savior, not as judge. And how do we come to have Christ as Savior? By turning from our sins and to Him by faith. We must trust in Him from the heart. We must confess that He is Lord. And I implore you to be sure that He is your Savior, not your judge, even today. Here is the good news. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let us bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the work that You did amongst Old Covenant Israel. We thank you for redeeming the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. We thank you for entrusting them with your precious and very great promises. We thank you for the way that the kingdom of God was prefigured amongst them on earth. We thank you even for the law code that you gave to them, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. We know that all in their own way um, they prepared for the coming of the Christ. And so we give you thanks, O Lord. We thank you above all for Christ that He has come, that He has redeemed us, not from Egypt, but from bondage to sin, from slavery to Satan's kingdom, and from the fear of death. We thank You for the redemption that is ours in Him, and we thank You for the way that Your moral law does work within our hearts even now by the power of the Holy Spirit to show us the way we must go, but also to convict us of sin. God, do convict us of sin. I pray for those who have not yet turned to Christ for salvation, that they would do so today, that they would trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, that they would be baptized upon their profession of faith as the Scriptures command. Lord, do this work in the midst of us, I pray. And for those who do know Christ, I pray that you would draw us back to yourself again and again. Remind us of our great need for you, O God. Help us, O Lord, to cling to you through Christ. We are grateful for him, O Lord. We pray that you would continue your sanctifying work in us and by your word and by your spirit for our good and the glory of your name and all of God's people say.